Okay, so in this lecture, we are going to talk about the slip capital femoral epiphysis. The risk factors include the obesity and adolescence. Clinical presentation includes dull hip pain, referred knee pain, altered gait, and limited internally rotated hip. So the patient will come with externally rotated hip because there is limited internal rotation. Also, you he will tell that he is also having pain in the knee. So don't confuse. The pain is the referred pain towards the knee. The main pain is present only at the hip joint. Diagnosis, on x-ray you will see posteriorly displaced femoral head. So you have to do an x-ray and you'll see posteriorly displaced femoral head. Treatment is non-weight bearing along with surgical pinning. Complication could be avascular necrosis and osteoarthritis. So widening of the epiphyseal growth plate due to abnormal cartilage maturation. So there is abnormal cartilage maturation which leads to widening of the epiphyseal growth plate and some, at some point of time it just slips off. So this result in progressive dull hip pain referred towards the knee or the thigh and there is altered gait and impaired internally rotated impaired internal rotation of the hip. Sip capital femoral epiphysis is diagnosed by the x-ray. You have to go for anteroposterior view or maybe frog leg lateral view. Frog leg lateral view of the bilateral hip. Radiograph reveals posterior and inferior displacement of the femoral head along with the plane of epiphysis giving the appearance of ice cream cone slipping off the cone. So ice cream slipping off the cone is the appearance seen in this condition. Up to 20% of those affected with bilateral involvement at the presentation and additionally 20 to 40% have bilateral involvement within 18 months of the initial strip capital femoral epiphysis. That's why do remember do bilateral x-ray. Why? I mean you do have to do bilateral x-ray but that is very important because on one side, if strip capital femoral epiphysis has occurred, then there are 40% chances that within next 18 months, you will have similar situation on the next side. And in 20% chances, you see that they occur bilaterally. So you have to figure out the treatment is immediate surgical pinning and delaying the treatment that is more than 24 hours in unstable. This can lead to avascular necrosis and femoral vestibular impingement which increases risk of the future degenerative arthritis so one should treat immediately differential diagnosis includes septic arthritis but for that you do the arthrocentesis but patient should have fever and acute onset of the hip pain but it is not acute onset dull chronic pain and uh, bone scintigraphy is avoided in children due to high radiation exposure and there are long-term complications so that's why you don't do this okay Next is the external redu uh, reduction and fixation with the cast is the treatment for fracture. It is not used as a treatment of strip capital femoral epiphysis. Weight loss helps to prevent the strip capital femoral epiphysis but it's not the treatment once it has occurred. Okay. Analgesic may provide some symptomatic relief but it will not address the underlying situation and since you know that it has a lot of complications such as avascular necrosis and osteoarthritis so re uh, observing those and preventing them is very important. That's why slip capital femoral epiphysis is a common cause of progressive hip pain and altered gait in adolescent obese person. It is diagnosed on x-ray with posteriorly displaced femoral head and immediate surgical pinning is the treatment of choice. Alright, so let's move further. Many older smokers do not attempt smoking cessation due to being unaware about the health benefits they can gain. So if a patient is there who is very pretty old and smoking since so many years maybe let's suppose 45 years or something so in such case they are not well aware about the health benefit they can gain by smoking cessation 
although quitting at age more than 60 is associated with a smaller absolute decline in mortality rate than for smoking cessation at age less than 60 cessation at any age has been shown to lower the risk of all cause of mortality and cardiovascular event although after 60 smoking cessation will cause decrease in mortality to some extent not completely zero as compared to less than 60 if you're quitting but still lower risk uh, for all causes of mortality so that's why it is beneficial benefit can be seen within five years after quitting so after five years of quitting you can see the benefits many older smokers have failed prior attempts at stations but this should not discourage continue attempts the u.s preventive service task force recommends that Every smoker must be assessed for readiness at the office visit, regardless of their age. And there are five A's approach. It's a simple method to implement and that will help you guys. So let's talk about the five A's of smoking cessation. First, ask about the tobacco at every office visit. Whenever the patient comes, you have to ask about the tobacco. Second is assess readiness to quit. Are you ready to quit? That means and you have to ask it in a way that the person is able to tell how much he is ready to quit. Okay. Next is advise the patient to quit. Tell them that you should quit because because of this is this reasons. Next is assess patient with pharmacologic agents and referral to the local physician program as appropriate. Give them the pharmacological agents and refer them to the local programs and arrange a quit date and follow up visit or contact. So ask Assess, advise, assist, ask, see the excess like how much they are ready and arrange for that. So these are the five questions you should ask and these are the five S of smoking cessation. Ask about tobacco visit, uh, tobacco at every visit, assess readiness to quit, advise patient to quit, assist in providing the pharmacological and the program referral and arrange for quit date and follow up visit for contacts so 5a approach is a simple method to implement this recommendation behavioral therapy and pharmacotherapy such as nico nicotine replacement bupropion vanislin should also be offered as appropriate next although eventual improvement in chronic cough is expected if a patient is coming to you with a chronic cough and there is a chance that you should tell that patient that if you quit smoking this cuff will be improved or something but it will not cause this thing immediately so that's not a good thing is good answer to say okay better you go for the quit, uh, quitting smoking cessation at age more than 60 is associated with smaller but absolute decline in mortality rate than for smoking cessation at age less than 60 cessation at any age has been shown to lower the risk for all causes of mortality and cardiovascular event the benefit can be seen within five years after quitting so what you should tell the patient is mortality risk will fall below current smokers of the similar use within five years so this is what you have to tell the patient all right now let's talk about the anomalous aortic origin of coronary artery disease or syndrome so anomalous aortic origin of coronary artery what happened in that anomalous origin of right aortic sinus 
an anomalous origin of left aortic sinus. So this, there is a patient who experienced sudden cardiac death, maybe because of the anomalous aortic origin of coronary artery, that is AAOCA, anomalous aortic origin of coronary artery. In young patient age less than 30, sudden cardiac death is usually due to underlining cardiac structural defect with ventricular tachyarrhythmia as most common terminal event. So the most common terminal event of any structural cardiac defect is ventricular tachyarrhythmia. The high risk type of anomalous aortic origin of coronary artery are amongst the most common cause of uh, sudden cardiac death in young athletes. In one study, autopsy on a military recruits with sudden cardiac death reveals this anomalous coronary artery to be a cause about one third of the cases. Two types of anomalous coronary artery origin is there. First one is the left main coronary artery originating from the right aortic sinus. Another one is right coronary artery originating from the left aortic sinus. These defects create sharp curvature of the anomalous artery, making it less amenable to high blood volume, high volume flow. In addition, the anomalous artery passes between the aorta and the pulmonary artery, making it susceptible to external compression during the exercise. So the, this artery anomalous circulation can compress the aorta and the pulmonary artery during the exercise. So that is again a very bad thing. Plus, it cannot accommodate because it has sharp curvatures, the high blood volume flow. So the patient with anomalous aortic artery origin may experience exertional angina, lightheadedness and syncope. However, some patients experience sudden cardiac death without any premonitory symptoms. So they might not have any kind of premonitory symptoms, but suddenly they are having this. Resting EKG is typically unremarkable. You'll see that there is nothing because it is only occurring during the exercise. Transthoracic echocardiography can sometimes make the diagnosis but can also miss the diagnosis or make an inaccurate diagnosis. CT coronary angiography or coronary MRI angiography is the best choice, best visualization of the coronary artery and are the diagnostic tests for suspected case of AAOCA. So do remember this thing. Now let's talk about the Brugada syndrome or QT, long QT syndrome. These are associated with increased risk of sudden cardiac death again, but Lack of EKG character findings for Brugada syndrome. Brugada syndrome must have some kind of EKG finding that is right bundle branch block ST elevation in lead V1 to V3. So if you see, there is right bundle branch block plus ST elevation in V1 to V3 lead. Always ST elevation is not associated with MI. If it is in V1 to V3 lead along with the right bundle branch block, think about Brugada syndrome. Then there is long QD syndrome where you see QD of more than equal to 450 milliseconds in men and more 470 milliseconds in female. So you should remember the value. Then only you can identify because it will not be given in any question, anywhere. You just have to think about it. So QD syndrome where QD is more than 450 in men and 470 in women suggests long QD syndrome, which could be a cause of sudden cardiac death. Make this diagnosis less likely. Yeah. Because here, the QDC in a case was 410. Now, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is most common cause of the sudden cardiac death in young athletes in the United States. However, it is unlikely if there is no murmur. And also, murmur, 
that increase in intensity with standing. So if there is absence of murmur that increase in intensity with standing, that suggests the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is not there. Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome is uncommon cause of sudden cardiac. It never causes, uh, like it's not that common cause. It can cause, but it's not always necessary. Resting EKG typically shows a short PR interval with a slurred upstroke with widened QRS complex. Widened QRS complex, slurred upstroke, and short PR interval on EKG suggests the Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. So what are the causes of sudden cardiac death? It could be anomalous aortic origin of coronary artery. Second one is Wolf-Parkinson, which is a less common cause. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Brugada syndrome, long QRS syndrome. Brugada syndrome, you will have EK, uh, the EKG findings of right bundle branch block along with the ST segment elevation in V1 to V3 lead. Long QT syndrome, you will have QT interval of more than 450 in men and 470 in women. Then there is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy at where you will see that systolic murmur is increasing with in intensity withstanding. Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome will have EKG changes of short PR interval with slurred upstroke widening of the QRS complex. Anomalous aortic origin of a coronary artery is common cause of sudden cardiac death in young athletes. Patient may have premonitory symptoms or may not have that. Premonitory symptoms includes the exertional angina, lightheadedness and syncope. EKG may be unremarkable. Transthoracic echocardiography can be unremarkable, but the best diagnostic testing is coronary angiography. Yeah. Now let's talk about the next thing, which is the stress hyperglycemia. What exactly is this stress hyperglycemia? Pathogenesis of stress hyperglycemia is increased cortisol level or catecholamines or pro-inflammatory cytokines resulting in transient elevation in blood glucose in a patient without known diabetes. So patient is not having any diabetes and never had any diabetes symptom and has been tested for many times. We don't know about that. But today, that patient's blood glucose level is pretty high. How much? It is uh, very high. That too, because of the increased cortisol, catecholamine or pro-inflammatory cytokine, this transient elevation is stress-induced hyperglycemia. Risk factor of that is if someone is admitted in the ICU unit, you see that there is a chance of stress-induced hyperglycemia. Temperature of more than equal to 39 degrees Celsius, that is 102 degrees Fahrenheit, then again this is a stress-induced hyperglycemia state. It can lead to that, 102 temperature, severe illness, sepsis, central nervous system infection. So these are the five risk factors. ICU admission, temperature of more than 102, and severe illness, sepsis, and central nervous system infection. How are you going to treat a case of stress hyperglycemia? In adults, minimize glucose-containing intravenous fluid. You try to switch to some other fluids if the person is taking glucose-containing intravenous fluid or simply just normal fluid also is replaced. And you try to give insulin to achieve a blood glucose level of target of 140 to 180. You try to achieve that. In children, inconclusive evidence for insulin therapy. So we are not sure whether in children we should give insulin or not. So... A patient, if they're and is having hyperglycemia, ketoacidosis in the setting of sepsis. So, with fever, hypotension, dehydration, tachycardia, your brain will directly go to DKA in this situation. But do remember, this can be because of the stress hyperglycemia. Stress hyperglycemia is defined as transient elevated blood glucose level. In context of several illness, like in context of severe illness in the patients without known diabetes, 
during illness as stress hyperglycemia can result from a high release levels of the stress hormones such as cortisol catecholamines and pro-inflammatory cytokines risk factors for the stress hyperglycemia include severe illness that is temperature more than or equal to 39 one or two degree fahrenheit sepsis meningitis and admission to the icu stress hyperglycemia is associated with increased risk of morbidity in critically ill patient in hyperglycemia critically ill patient glucose containing intravenous fluid if a patient is adult especially glucose containing intravenous fluid are minimized and insulin is administered to achieve glucose target level of 140 to 180 mg per deciliter for hyperglycemia critical illness critically ill children the optimal blood glucose target range and the data on the insulin therapy are inconclusive no relationship between stress hyperglycemia and persistent abnormal glucose metabolism or subsequent diagnosis of the diabetes mellitus has been demonstrated now the patient hba1c should be checked if the patient hba1c is normal that rules out dka that is type 1 diabetes why because it rules out chronic hyperglycemia in addition the patient with no history of weight loss no history of polyuria polydipsia polyphagia does not meet the criteria for diagnosis of the diabetes mellitus because for the diagnosis of diabetes mellitus american diabetes association criteria for diabetes mellitus diagnosis includes first random blood plasma level of more than equal to 200 mg per deciliter in patient with classic symptoms of hyperglycemia polyuria polydipsia or something or so either they have the symptoms plus the more than 200 glucose level or hemoglobin of more than equal to 6 a1c of more than equal to 6.5% fasting glucose of more than equal to 126 mg per deciliter or 2r plasma glucose level of more than equal to 200 during the oral glucose tolerance test so these are the four criteria of ADA association. ADA. First, random blood glucose of more than equal to 200 with the classical hyperglycemic symptoms. Second, HbA1c of more than equal to 6.5. Third, fasting plasma glucose of more than equal to 126. Fourth, 2R plasma glucose level of more than equal to 200 milligram during the oral glucose tolerance test. Okay. But if that is not meeting the criteria, then you should think about the stress induced okay yeah cushing syndrome can also cause the glucocorticoid excess and typically seen in obese children but you will see other skin changes rashes trias glucose intolerance hypertension but if a patient is not hypertensive normal bmi nothing is there you can rule out cushing syndrome although oral glucocorticoid can lead to exogenous glucocorticoid excess and glucose intolerance in the setting of cushing syndrome like as we explained in setting of cushing syndrome Systemic absorption is rare with proper use of inhaled corticoid. See, if a patient, this patient was asthma, having asthma and symptoms like that. So we were giving the steroid inhalers. If someone is using steroid inhalers, the amount is not that sufficient to cause excess glucocorticoid, which can lead to hyperglycemia. So this state is because of stress hyperglycemia. Do remember this conditions or places, risk factors where you have to think about it. ICU setting, temperature more than 1 or 2, severe illness, sepsis, and central nervous system infection. Yeah. Moving further. Now let's talk about the most common cause of post-operative hypoxemia. What are the common causes of post-operative hypoxemia? First is airway obstruction or edema. During the surgery, it can occur immediately. What will be the feature you will notice in such patients? Strider, 
often due to endotracheal intubation or pharyngeal muscle laxity. Let's see, we are doing endotracheal intubation or there is pharyngeal muscle laxity which can lead to obstruction. Intubation leads to swelling, that's why there is obstruction. You see, because of the strider is common. Immediately it can occur. Second thing is residual anesthetic effect. That is also seen immediately, like you will not see a gap. Now, anesthetic agent benzodiazepine opioid use can cause residual anesthetic effect which can lead to respiratory diminution like post-operative hypoxia, diminished respiratory drive. So if the drive is low, you will see that respiratory rate is low, tidal volume is low. But if a patient is having tachypnea, you should rule out this. Now, bronchospasm. Typically early, you will see wheezing because bronchus is under spasm. Pneumonia. One to five days it will take because because of the condition or the environment where the patient is there. Fever, elevated WBC count and purulent secretion will be there. Infiltrate on the chest x-rays. On the, on the chest x-ray, you will see that there are infiltrate which will figure out pneumonia. There is fever, elevated WBC count, purulent secretion. Atyl excesses can also occur but that occurs two to five days. Thoracoabdominal surgeries, if there, then you have to think about it, Alexis, because of pricking or something happens, something like that. Splinting, and you will also see reduced cuffing, retained secretion can lead to atelectasis. Pulmonary embolism, thromboembolic or fat. It is uncommon before three days. It can occur later because of the DVD and something like that. So you will see chest pain, tachycardia, and little improvement on oxygen supplementation. So post-operative atelectasis is a common following a thoracoabdominal surgery. It results from decreased lung compliance. That is a transient effect of thoracoabdominal surgery, possibly due to anesthesia, as well as post-operative pain leading to hypoventilation, reduced cough, and impaired mucus clearance. Smoking, obesity, and underlying lung and neurologic diseases increases the post-operative atelectasis. The manifestations are usually somewhat delayed. Typically, it takes two to five days post-operatively. When symptomatic patients may have uh, increased work of breathing or hypoxia, arterial blood gas analysis, you will see there is increase in the AA gradient due to pulmonary, intrapulmonary shunting. Also, chest x-ray, you will see clear linear opacification of the bilateral lung base, sometimes with an accompanying shift of structures towards the opacification if atelectasis is large so if there is very minor atelectasis because of the low a, uh, low oxygen getting in because of the increased a, a gradient as there is intrapulmonary shunting post-operatively because of the residual anesthetic effect or something like that so you will see linear opacification at the base of the lung this linear opacification at the base of the lungs suggests the AA gradient is high and intrapulmonary shunting is occurring and there is uh, less blood, less air inside there. And structural, sometimes if there is severe or large atelectasis, you will see that the structures are towards the opacification. For patients with minimal respiratory secretions, the administration of the continuous positive airway pressure is often effective. So if a patient is not having any respiratory secretion of very minimal, then you should go for CPAP. However, if a patient is secreting more like copious amount of mucus or cuff or white sputum, they are supposed to manage with pulmonary hygiene, which includes the chest physiotherapy and suction rather than CPAP. 
So if a patient is there having all these symptoms and was on opioid drug for pain medication and is undergoing a thoracoabdominal surgery, now having tachypnea, but there is low oxygen saturation on the chest x-ray, you see that there is bilateral lung-based linear opacification. And uh, so at this point of time, if a patient is coughing, you should go for chest physiotherapy and suctioning, which is called as pulmonary hygiene. If a patient is not coughing, you should go for CPAP. That's how we treat. And if it's a case of community acquired pneumonia, the medication of choice is ceftrioxone with azithromycin. So azithromycin you usually give for pneumonia, but ceftrioxone you do have to add. However, the absence of the fever, consolidation on the chest x-ray in this patient, like there should be fever, consolidation, but the, all these things are not there. So you can rule that out. Empiric treatment for the pseudomonas is piperacillin tezobactam, which is seen in hospital acquired situation. But it's not that because there again you'll see fever and all those things. Opioid can cause central respiratory depression, which can lead to hypoventilation, which can attribute to atelectasis. And the dose minimization for the prevention of atelectasis can be needed. But firstly, what you have to do is maintain the aggressive pulmonary hygiene. Diuresis with the intravenous furosemide can be needed if there is it's it was a case of pulmonary edema or volume overload has occurred because of the chest congestive heart failure something like that and you will see if there is congestive heart failure there you will see jugular venous distension and alveolar infiltrate will show significant pulmonary edema something like that on the chest x-ray and nebulization of bronchodilator bron you will see that if there is bronchospasm which could be a post-operative complication but the absence of wheezing rule that out so you can rule that out as well so post-operative atelectasis is common two to five days following the thoracoabdominal surgery and typically present with hypoxemia or respiratory difficulty. Patients without respiratory secretions can manage with continuous positive airway pressure, whereas those with respiratory secretions are managed best with the aggressive pulmonary hygiene, including the chest physiotherapy and suctioning. So this is it for this lecture. I know it was too much. I hope you guys go through this lecture again. There's a lot of information. You can make notes and use it wisely. Thank you so much for listening.